special edition of our show, Her Story on the Rocks. On a typical night, I'd be sitting here with my co-host Katie having some cocktails and we'd be hanging out just the two of us talking about famous women from history. But today and other days, we like to talk to women who are writing about history and writing stories about history. Barbara is here with us today. She is the author of Fake Like Me and I'll Eat When I'm Dead. And she's here to talk about her third book, The Force of Such Beauty. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. I am, um, yeah, I'm a novelist. I live in Baltimore. The Force of Such Beauty is my third book. Uh, the previous two, Fake Like Me, came out in 2019 and I'll Eat When I'm Dead, which was my debut. I should specify that's a thing a very rich woman said in The New Yorker. It's not a personal value of mine. <laughs> Um, it is satire. Um, yeah, that one came out in 2017. And um, yeah, and the book that we're talking about today, The Force of Such Beauty, I got to work on it for five years. And I just, I absolutely loved writing it. And it's been a pleasure to watch it go into the world. And I'm sad not to be working on it anymore. But um, yeah, <laughs> I think it, I think it was time. So yeah, when I was Thank reading your um, bio, I was like, ah, oh, she's in Baltimore. She's perfect. <laughs> are you in Baltimore? Yeah, as well? our show our show is based out of Baltimore. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's amazing. Are you in the city? Um, I just moved. So my husband and I lived in Parkville. Um, we moved down to Catonsville, but Katie lives in the city. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, we've been here for um almost nine years. So we made a cocktail for your book and I, I already half drank it because it's like hot and humid in Baltimore, but it is obviously called The Force of Such Beauty. And I took some Prosecco and poured it in glass and then sunk grenadine down to the bottom. So it had that like red, like bloodlust sitting on the bottom. And then I put bitters in it also. So cheers to you. Cheers to your book. And of course, oh my gosh, you a picture. It's so pretty. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers to you and your book. So let's begin. Let's dive into this novel. Can you set the scene for us? Where and when is this taking place? So the book is set in uh, an imaginary country on the Mediterranean coast in Europe, and most of it takes place during the mid-2000s. When the novel opens, uh, it opens on a princess who has been living in this in this country that she married into, and she is trying to escape. And in the very first chapter, we see her attempt to flee, and she completely fails. And then she goes back and kind of reassesses all of the things that had brought her to that place. And so she goes back in time quite a bit. She goes back all the way, I think, to 1990. Um, and then fast forwards through the intervening years. Um, you know, how did she how did she get there? How did she wind up feeling like a prisoner in yeah. a palace? Mm. Is it difficult to write uh, an imaginary country, but set in like present day real world? Admittedly, it was not. It, um, you know, obviously there are several tiny, very wealthy countries in Europe. There is, of course, Monaco, which is on the coastline. There is Liechtenstein. There is Andorra, um, which is uh, in the Pyrenees between um, Spain and France. There is Luxembourg, uh, which is not so tiny by comparison. There's the Vatican, of course, which is a very wealthy, very small nation. And uh, the reality of uh, most of those places is that they are, they actually don't feel very glamorous in real life. Um, 
Uh, and Dora was kind of uh, glamorous in a way that I didn't, in kind of an antique way. It's got these two, it's got two ski resorts that look like they haven't been updated since the 1970s, which I was, I was there during summer, but I looked at them and I was like, you know, I would ski that. It's, it seems very dangerous, but I would do it. Uh, it was shockingly beautiful, but you know, all of these countries exist. They're tiny little countries. They don't really have militaries. So the power that they have to kind of hold their own in Europe is entirely economic. And they get through that by being tax-free in some way, shape or form. So they either don't have income tax or they don't have property tax or both, or in the case of Andorra, they don't have sales tax. They don't have VAT. So it's this absolutely gorgeous country in the middle of the mountains and it's covered in car dealerships because the sales tax on cars in Europe is pretty high. Uh, so people come there to get buy gas and, and buy cars and it kind of spoils the landscape. Um, That's and so Monaco, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all kind of, you know, things, um, uh, things that are designed to be kind of gilded and luxurious, um, the maintenance of that, it, you really have to maintain it. It doesn't, it doesn't just stay looking beautiful and perfect by itself. And when that thing is kind of entirely symbolic, um, it really decays very quickly. Mm. So, yeah. And I think, you know, the Vatican is obviously probably pretty, the Pope, I imagine, leads quite a luxurious lifestyle despite his theoretical commitment to a life of poverty. But the, um, you know, the part of the Vatican that, that tourists can see is, of course, covered in other tourists, which immediately makes it not at all glamorous. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Caroline. That's the name of your main character. It's also the name yes. of my daughter, which makes me absolutely love her immediately. Um, but what what are some of her character traits? She's obviously going through some stuff, right, in this book. And you're there with her. Did you want to set her up like um, a hero? Is she a damsel in distress? Is she an anti-hero? What were you going for with her? I think that she is all of those things. You know, uh, the princess story is an archetype that has been haunting us for an incredibly long time um, because it was really economically viable for a very long time until probably, I don't know, 50 years ago in the United States. You can't even say this about most other countries. Um, but, you know, for, for most women, for, uh, for the past several thousands of years, our safety has come through marriage. Um, and the things that we were supposed to do with our time, with ourselves, with our life, was make ourselves um, appealing to someone who wanted to marry us, to make ourselves valuable to a, ma- a valuable man, to, to become a princess, to find a castle and to hide in it. And that was kind of our path to safety. And, you know, that is such an overwhelming idea. And it is just because, you know, some of, like for some of us in our generation, um, I'm a millennial, I think you probably are too, or a zennial technically, whatever that yeah. the oldest part of it. But, you know, for our generation, 40% of us got to go to, got to graduate from college, actually more than that, I think got to attend, which is of course the most of any American generation in history. And for some of us, maybe our parents went to college, maybe our grandparents went to college. But for most women, that still doesn't mean very much. We still have we still have a pay gap. We still have a society that makes it incredible. You said you have a daughter. I'm sure being a parent during COVID revealed all of the ways in which women have been covering up how hard it is to be a parent for so long. They've just been picking up the slack. And um, yeah, I'm just, it's been, uh, you know, I feel like I was um, in my own personal life, I was raised uh, with this kind of uh, millennial theme of you can be anything you want to be. But then at the end of that, it sort of always became clear that that meant as long as I was always a wife and a mother. Uh, and I never, and I just, you just sort of keep going around and around and around it. There's so much princess stuff in our lives, not just on, you know, our friends, kids and frozen dresses, but um, every kind of 
feminized thing that you can participate in kind of eventually leads to some sparkle, a tiara, a shoe that immobilizes. And what does this mean for us as women? Like when we participate in the things that um, historically have made us feel good and economically viable, does that, are we betraying ourselves? Are we betraying each other? It's, it's a really confusing question. And like, we didn't make this world, you know, we were just born into it. So how do you, anyway, um, Caroline is, um, Caroline is all the above. I think she's a pretty full character, but I think she's also pretty naive in a lot of ways. Yeah. And she, she interests me because she is strong athletically, right? Like she has this past of being an Olympic athlete, which makes her like a prime candidate for the role. But also we know that throughout history, women that participate in athletics are like, less likely to be sexually assaulted and more likely to move up in business. So it's very interesting that she has this strength and she's also still going through this, which I, I love because I love looking up to these women in the Olympics and I'm like, oh, they're so strong, but they also have their faults. Yeah. And they're, and they're fallible just like the rest of us. And the thing about having a strong body, I mean, it's not just Olympic bodies. When we look at any kind of woman's body that is um, economically valuable in a wide variety of ways, whether it's as an object of regard or, you know, in the case of a princess, a a literal member of a government that reproduces for it. Um, These women, you know, famous women's bodies, whether we mean royal bodies or celebrity bodies, these are incredibly athletic bodies. It is when you look at women who are on a red carpet, they, they are Olympic level fit, honestly. They work so hard to look like that. And that's not a guarantee of freedom or even a sense of self. It's really um, astonishing to me how how much, um, I guess, our visual culture takes for granted the amount of work that women are meant to put into their bodies in public um, and how how difficult it is to, to get around that in any way, shape, or form. Right. Absolutely. And I I was thinking as I was looking through this that most um stories follow this princess archetype finish at like the happily ever after line um and it seems as if your story kind of is like okay but here's the ever after right here's what happens after you're put in this role of having to be in public constantly and focus on your body and your image and what you say to the public and you know having pictures taken and like you said reproducing literally just for a government yeah, that's your only job, right? So you are a reproductive asset for a government, a hereditary government, a government that literally requires the use of women's bodies to function. And the princess story has uh, does always, it ends in happily ever after. It ends when your fertility has been um, acquired by the government, effectively. You exist as potential. And then the moment that you stop being potential, you kind of cease to exist. And I, um, yeah, it's, you know, we, we live in the, you and I live in the United States. Uh, we live in a country that very obviously does not have a monarchy that formed itself in partially in opposition to a monarchy, partially to also to try to have slaves, not our finest moment. Um, but the, uh, the monarchy itself still exists in our daily lives all the time because a monarchy by any other name is if it's a family, it's the same thing. You've got a breadwinner, you've got a dependent and you've got uh, you've got a breadwinner, a caretaker, and dependents. You've got a, a, a king, a queen, and, and princes and princesses. Mm-hmm. And um, it sort of it creates this kind of feudal interaction where every little castle is for itself, um, which is sort of one of the hallmarks of the American political system is that we pay, we love family. Family is like our most important political chit. 
uh, and it pits people against each other and it sort of pits women against each other um, and forces us to fight for families instead of fighting for the things that I think like women and all women and children need. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So anyway, it's an archetype that um, I think applies in a lot of ways to, to contemporary life. Yeah. Sure. Even if it seems like an anachronism. Mm. So this book is partially or a little bit inspired by the story of Charlene Whitstock. Now I had never heard of her. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Sure. Yeah. She, um, I know some things about her and there's a lot I don't know. You know, she is an Olympic athlete who married the prince of a very small European nation. And she cried her entire wedding day. There's lots of video evidence of it. She allegedly made multiple attempts to escape. That was in lots of European newspapers. And um, she uh, was, she left during COVID for a while. She went back to South Africa. She uh, is from South Africa. She's born in Zimbabwe. And um, yeah, and they, you know, she went into it. Uh, they actually dated for about eight or nine years before they got married. So I think she had, some awareness of what she was getting into. But I also think that uh, when you come from a young, imperfect democracy uh, like South Africa, uh, you're, I think you're pretty primed to accept an authoritarian narrative um, of, a, of a tiny, you know, airless security state monarchy as something that is maybe positive <laughs> uh, because imperfect democracies are complicated and difficult. Um, we live in one ourselves and it, it is fractious and it is hard. And it's a lot easier to have someone tell you, I'm going to take care of you. And here's what the rules are that I think seems very appealing. So yeah, it's, um, that's about as she was a swimmer. I can tell you that as well. She was on a relay team and she competed, I think in one set of Olympics, but, uh, yeah, it, it seems so tragic to me to go from being an Olympic athlete to, uh, standing in a dress and looking incredibly unhappy um what a what a thing to have happened to your life um yeah uh and you know it's also there's a lot about princess diana in here that or the reading about princess diana that went into this book her story is oh it's so disappointing every time you read about it you're just like man you had you know she's from an incredibly wealthy a princess diana center was from an incredibly aristocratic um wealthy british family she was educated abroad they sent her to Switzerland to go, not to college, to finishing school. Mm -hmm. um, and the British educational system is really, it's really winner take all. They have a series of standardized tests that start when you're 11 years old. And that's what um, kind of divides people up as to whether or not they're going to go to university. And their university system is far less, um, it's less democratic and it's far less diverse than ours. It's sort of like if we only had Harvard and Yale, and everything else was a state school. Like we have a huge variety of educational possibilities in the United States. That's just not true there. And it's all based on standardized testing. So her family sent her to schools where she didn't actually even take any of those tests. So if she, even if she wanted to go to college, she would not have been able to get in, which is, it's wild to me. This is someone who's related to the Royal family. She's unable to go to college. And uh, so the job that she took upon graduating, graduating from finishing school at 19 was as an aide at a kindergarten, which is a fine job, but it's, if you've been sent abroad to be educated and you come home and that's what you're doing, you know, you're, you're a nanny. Yeah. Um, and then she was, you know, engaged and married within like a year and a half. And, um, and she married a man who uh, obviously was not particularly interested in her as we, as we all saw. And then when she left, she was, uh, she was no longer placed um, under the arm of the state security apparatus. And so she, was, you know, she got in a car with a driver who was drunk and then she died. And it is incredibly sad. Yeah, it is. And we see 
you know, the stories a lot. And even ones that don't end that tragic, people like um, Meghan Markle, which obviously her story's still being written. Um, but yeah. our, you know, our dear friend who was from Baltimore and married into the Royals back in the day, um, you know, also goes go through all of those motions as getting into the royal family. Yeah, I, Meghan Markle has really surprised me. I started writing this book, I want to say, when she started dating Prince Harry. And I was really surprised by that because she's incredibly smart. Yeah. And I was, and I was really surprised that she dated him. And I was really surprised when they got married. And then um, when I first sent this, the draft of this into my editor after kind of like keeping it to myself, that was the week that she, uh, right before COVID, the week that she left. And I was so impressed that she did it. I was so impressed that she took her husband with her. I've been impressed every step of the way. Mm. Leave it to an American, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what, as you were reading the book, did your relation or writing the book, did your relationship with Caroline change? Like, did you want her to kind of be one way? And then sometimes you were like in love with her. And sometimes you were like, I hate you. Get it together, girl. <laughs> yeah, I um I think that uh, uh you know, I was I always knew how the book was going to end and I always knew where it was going and I um it's such a balance as you know, you're you're writing for a readership. You're not really just writing for yourself. So you're always trying to figure out what is the kind of th how much can I show and reveal here and how much can I make her frustrating or fallible or imperfect in a way that uh, the reader is going to keep wanting to stay in the story, keep wanting to turn the pages. And I say this as a person who loves to read, you know, it is such a pleasure to be brought on that journey by someone. It's such a gift. And so, um, yeah, with this book playing with the kind of tropes of the princess story in a way that felt uh, fresh and interesting, um, but not kind of deliberately different per se, but still, you know, it very much is a princess story. I've been asked if it's a deconstructed fairy tale, and it's not. It's a literal reconstruction of a fairy tale. It's a, it's a story about state control over a woman's body. Right. That is what it is about. And so, um, yeah, but how do you, I wanted her to, um, I don't know, it encompass a lot of complexities. And I think that she, I hope that she does. I hope that she feels that way to the reader because she felt that way to me. And is that how you want people to relate? Like when they sit down and read this and then they finish and they get up and walk away, what do you want them to take with them? Oh boy. Well, uh, you know, my hope is that it changes the way that you feel about the princess story. Um, because that is, there's so many marketing dollars that rely on the princess story to sell us stuff. And it's, it's really profound how much it, it finds its way into our lives, into not just our products, but into the, into the social fabric, um, of our existence. I, you know, I started writing this book. Uh, I've been married now for 10 years. I started writing it when I'd been married for five and uh, I was astonished at the insistence with which um, people in my life, uh, smart people, wonderful, modern people, people with PhDs and security clearances, still wanted to talk to my husband about his job and still wanted to ask me when I was going to have a baby, as though that was the most important thing I could do with my life. Not that it's not important, but as a woman without a baby, I found it really kind of astonishingly insistent because it's not like I was walking around um, bringing it up, uh, for all kinds of reasons. Um, and, uh, yeah. And you sort of wonder when something like this just doesn't happen for you. You're like, is that my only value? Is that all that I am? 
am I just supposed to belong to another person and reproduce for them? It really, it was this, you know, I was, I was stunned, I guess, at how persistent it was, even in my life, which I had thought of my own life as being um, removed from this. You know, you live at, you live in Baltimore as well. Baltimore is an incredibly um, special, wonderful, diverse city full of all kinds of different viewpoints. And really, I mean, I'm saying different, full of, it's a really liberal progressive city. It's an incredibly modern place Very in a lot of ways. And um, so I was just, uh, yeah, you know, but you can't, that's the thing is like, like I say, our generation, you know, we're, we're all these women who just got to go to college, like it was just happening for us. And, you know, we can tell each other that we can be whatever we want, but until we kind of discard these things that, that we ourselves use to, to kind of keep ourselves back in line and to, that help us, you know, teach us to walk two steps behind men. I don't think we're going to, it's hard. We got to dig it out of ourselves. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting because if you're not looking for it, it's very easy to look over, right? Like yeah. if I'm sitting at a brunch with my family and they ask my husband about his promotion and me about the kids. And yeah. usually, like you said, um, my co-host Katie um, is married and is undecided on whether or not she wants to have kids. So people ask her that all the time. I have two daughters. I get all the time. Are you going to try for a boy? I'm like, sure. <laughs> Why? Well, I, I did the thing. I had the kids. What do you mean? <laughs> also, what a wild, it's just such a wild question. And I do, I think also the other thing about Baltimore that I found on the one hand, it's, you know, um, for readers who are listening to this podcast, you may or may not know this, but Maryland is one of the two states in the union where infertility is considered, um, uh, a healthcare issue. And so it's covered, you know, a lot of infertility treatments, including IVF are covered by healthcare in Maryland. And my, my suspicion about why that is, is because we had a lot of older nerds here. You know, we got a lot of women who were like, I'm not really going to have time until I'm like 42, you know, maybe this is it, or maybe it's just, we live in a progressive, compassionate state that sees things as there are, could also be that. Um, so you do have, you know, people talking about something that uh, is like a, it's one of those things that you learn about from your friends, right? Healthcare is one of those things you talk about with your friends where you're like, oh, this won't be covered or this is that. And people do discuss it. But then at the same time, yeah, it, it just, um, what a presumption to make about a person. <laughs> right, exactly. About a person, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So as you were writing, you mentioned that you had um, been to Andorra. You mentioned that you did a lot of reading about Princess Diana. What other kinds of research did you have to do? Um, because to me, it seems like, when you're writing um, a novel that it just, you want everything to be so pinned down. So it's realistic to the reader. Yeah. I, uh, I read a couple of different uh, works of scholarship about fairy tales, very specifically because they are so loaded. The vocabulary in fairy tales is incredibly powerful. Sun, moon, stars, crystal, slipper, yeah, and fairy tales, we know a lot about the spaces. Fairy tales are almost always stories about places. Uh, we know where the hut in the forest is. We know where the castle is. We know where the spinning wheel is located. We know where the locked room where he keeps his dead wives are. We get all of these pieces. And um, when you're playing with that, it, when you're writing that way, it, it can be so incredibly overwhelming um, that I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how do I use this vocabulary or employ this vocabulary in a way that doesn't put the cart before the horse. Mm -hmm. And um, I read, gosh, I also read a lot about the French monarchy 
um, which is fascinating and disgusting. They just, you know, at Versailles, they would just like during parties, they wouldn't even go outside to use the bathroom. The aristocrats would just go into the hallway and just go and leave it for the servants to clean it up, which is like, no wonder they got their heads cut off. And, um, they had, you know, really, uh, it, it seems really difficult to have been an aristocrat in France. Actually, I say this like, so it seems terrible. You know, you didn't, if you were um, Marie Antoinette, she didn't have any, she's 14 years old, number one. She's from Austria. She's a fourth, she's a literal eighth grade girl. A little baby. <laughs> she's a little baby eighth grade girl. And, you know, she, uh, all of a sudden, uh, she's living in a place where a, like two dozen adult women, Men have the right to come into her bedroom whenever she wants, and they have the right to to fight over, you know, based on their rank, who's going to hand her her shirt. So uh, she has to stand there and wait, you know, wait in the cold for her shirt to be put on. Um, and her only value is the amount of children that she can have. That's it. They're just like have more babies. And of course, obviously for her, it does not end well. She goes to the guillotine. Um, but uh, what a what a nightmare! What a terror! Yeah. Um, yeah. So how, you know, how do you take these things and, and make them feel modern and fresh? Anyway, I hope that I was able to do that. <laughs> I can tell you what I tried to do. I don't know if I can assert that I did it. But. So was there a part in your book that was incredibly difficult to write and then something that was just like really fun? Uh, the ending is always incredibly difficult of any novel because you have a freight train's worth of momentum. And you're trying so hard to wrap it up in a way that feels inevitable, but also doesn't feel like the reader's going to see it. You know, you need to feel it playing out in kind of a shock. At least that's, that's how it happens in this book. That's not necessarily, of course, how it happens in every novel. People and novels in all kinds of ways, but you're really working towards something and keeping that, um, keeping that momentum at bay so that the reader actually is reading what's on every page of the last like 30 pages. That was really tough. I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And it's possible that I wasn't entire, you know, it still feels like you're just, you're just going to race through it. Um, yeah, that was incredibly difficult. I have to say this stuff about her athleticism was incredibly fun to write because what a, what a great fantasy. Um, that's, that is maybe the greatest pleasure of writing fiction is imagining yourself in the good parts of other people's lives. Mm. Um, and really, and really making it real, not just for you, but for also for the reader. So you get to kind of be in that body and, and feel what it was like to, to be that strong. That's so cool. Well, I know people are going to love this book. It's a really fun read. It's a beautiful cover. So your bookshelf will be eternally grateful. <laughs> and, um, can you tell people where they can find you, where they can find your upcoming events, how they can follow you online and then where they can buy this book? Yeah, I am uh, totally uninteresting online, but I do have a newsletter. It's at barbaraborland.substack.com. And uh, and I have a website, barbaraborland.com. I'm working on my next book. So it'll be another couple of years before the website <laughs> has a new thing on it, but that'll be that. But I do have events listed there and I have a couple coming up. I'm uh, reading at the uh, Hidden Palace reading series at Badensonen, um in Baltimore on Thursday, September 8th. And then I will also be doing the launch party for The Force of Such Beauty on Wednesday, September 28th at Greedy Reads Bookstore in Remington, uh, which is owned by my very good friend, Julia. And I like to haunt the store. And uh, I'll be meeting with their book club at seven o'clock. And then I'm going to do a reading. So if you've read the book and you want to come talk about it with the book club, please show up at seven on Wednesday, September 28th at Greedy Reads Remington. 
And if you want to just hear a reading and hang out and be at the launch party, it starts at eight. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and for talking with me. And I'm I'm really excited to finish it. I'm about halfway through, so I can't wait to get Oh, to I end. see. Okay. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, um, I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. I guess we'll see how you feel about about how where it all goes. Yeah, I'll let you know. I'm sure I'll love it. I'm a big uh I read constantly. So um yeah. this is I'm I'm really into it right now. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye